Psalm 141. When I was in seminary, we had the joy of going to, to learn God's Word, to be with older men and women in the faith that would pour into us. And, but some things that could never really convey the, the hardships, no doubt, that are accompanied with, with ministry and leadership, burdens that ministers and servants would, would bear, secret burdens often coming into a family to encourage and strengthen, but something you would never go around telling people about, sins, consequences for sin that need to be born, sin that needs to be confronted. Sometimes the Lord gives us opportunities to see some great encouragements. Not that those aren't encouraging. There are aspects of encouragement in them, but they can be very lonely burdens for, for ministers to bear. But the encouragements are amazing and they're astounding. I had one, wasn't too long ago, I would even say maybe a year and a half ago, a dear couple, I'll give their names, won't give their last, but Patty and Tim showed up here. Patty loved the ministry of the word, just excited to hear the preaching from Pastor Pat. And one day I found out that she was at Emmanuel Hospital and Robin and I went and met with Patty and Tim and they informed us that Patty, being youthful 60s, looked much, much younger, um, had been diagnosed with cancer in her back, running up and down her spine. She'd given just months to live. She, she had a chronic cough and didn't know what the problem was and finally went in and she had terminal cancer. And uh, it's, a, it's a shock as Robin and I are there and we're, how do, we, how do we comfort? And what she said to me was just mind-blowing. She said, you know, this is a great opportunity for me to show my children and my grandchildren how to die in Christ. She had a burden for some of her kids to come to know Christ. And she knew that this death, cancer, leading to death and decay would present her an opportunity to explain the hope that can only come from Jesus Christ. She had a couple of prayer requests. One the Lord did not answer and the other he did. And one was in her final days to actually be wheeled here, to come and lay in the back just to hear the word of God and then in a few weeks transition to the glories of heaven to rejoice in the Lamb. That was one. The Lord did not give that to her. She um, decayed pretty quickly. The other one was to have alertness mentally until the day that she would close her eyes to be able to look at her children and grandchildren in the eye and testify to the grace of God. Now, I, I didn't find out about the event until after she had gone to be with the Lord, but Tim met with me at a village inn and said, I want to tell you about the Lord's answer to that prayer. She, he said, well, she was weak and she could barely pull herself together. The Lord would provide a strength when her grandchildren or children were there, clear eyes, to boast in Christ and to point them to Christ. And then when they would leave, she would collapse and she'd be out for days, weeks. And then the next opportunity, the Lord would give grace and she would come to an alertness and be presenting Christ. And he was amazed by that. And the other aspect, he said, is he had the opportunity to the day she, she left this earth to heaven to, to be there. And there was a clarity about her. He said, I was able to look in her eyes and to, to, to talk with her about the glories of Christ. And then her eyes, the, the light of her eyes faded and she moved on. That is a mind-blowing experience. I get to share with you here for the first time. I've done it in Sunday school classes, but it, it blew me away 
a perspective in suffering, not just a perspective of suffering. We, we know as believers why we are in a sin-suffering world. It's because Adam, our federal head and representative, declared war on God, and we're his nation. <laughs> so we understand that as Christians, but how do we have a perspective in this suffering to make use of it? And thankfully, God has given us these spiritual journals one penned through the life of David that are meant to instruct us and to teach us about the full-orbed experiences, human experiences of dealing with suffering and hardship. Indeed, there are times of joy and encouragement and there are times of despair, times of wanting to cry out for for vengeance on on evil, justice, fairness, times of depression and loneliness. And Psalm 141 leads us in four Christian perspectives in the midst of suffering. Now, why would we as believers want to listen to David? <laughs> and really quickly, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is given for, for doctrine, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. So it trains us, equips us. And secondly, 1 Corinthians 10 says that you're given examples for us. So we're able to look at these spiritual journals and go, aha, this is a way of suffering for the glory of the Lord in the midst of difficulty. But third, Romans 11 is very clear that we, even as Gentiles, have been grafted into the family of Abraham by faith in Christ. We're part of his, if you will, adopted family. And so we can claim David even as our own, as a, as a forefather, as an ancestor, if you will, spiritually. And so all have wonderful relevance to us. And then we'll look at a final aspect in Christ that should encourage our hearts. So four Christian perspectives in suffering. Now, before we look at the first one, We have to look at suffering. Why would we say there's suffering here? Well, verse 7 of Psalm 141, here's a suffering characteristic. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol, dealing with the mouth of death. He sees himself as inevitably at the mouth of death. He's about ready to cross over. There's great suffering. In verse 8, he uses this term, in you... I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. I'm vulnerable. And then we find in verse 9, keep me from the trap that they've laid for me, from the snares of evildoers. Characteristic here of great suffering and temptation and trial, vulnerability, exposure. Now, contextually, if we'd step back into that historical time, Theologians don't really know where to pin this in, in David's life. Is it Saul? Is it when he was hiding? When he was on the run? Times he hid in the cave? It could be that he's expressing this when he is hiding amongst the, the Philistines. Do you remember he, by God's grace, took on Goliath? But there's a time where Saul now is threatened by David, and so he's pursuing David, and David hides among his enemies. And they, 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 they know he's the giant killer, the Goliath killer. So what he does is grows out his beard, drools on it, feigns madness, and scribbles on the wall like a madman. So he's not only hiding in the enemy, but he's also hiding amidst a pretense madness. It could be that. The other option is Absalom, his own son, whom he loved, turned on him, drove him from the throne, drove him from Jerusalem to hide among strangers. This text, the way it describes in verse 6, judges or princes that are thrown over the cliff, 
probably would better relate to either one of these situations. But we're not given the exact detail. And I think that's helpful because we have a tendency to go, well, I wasn't in that exact situation, so my suffering doesn't match. By being broad in general allows us to go, wait a minute, there's suffering. I go through suffering. I know someone going through suffering. What are the Christian perspectives I need to take in the midst of suffering? First Christian perspective. First Christian perspective. That God would accept prayer. That God would accept prayer. Verse 1. This is just astounding stuff here. Oh Lord, and I just want to stop right there. Yahweh, the self-existent one. (laughs) The independent one. He relies on no one, needs nothing. All creation depends upon him for life. Oh Lord, Yahweh. And then this statement, I call upon you. See the boldness? Hasten to me. So we see transcendence. The sovereign Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent one. No one can claim that. Even our our greatest world leaders are dependent on food. One moment, leading the, the world, leading the armies, leading a nation. But they're eating food. They're dependent. They're breathing air. They will die. But not this Lord and sovereign. And David has the boldness in his suffering to say, Lord, I call. The idea of summon. Come quickly. Eminence. Fellowship. Presence. Who would have such confidence in the presence of the sovereign one of the universe to call God in this way? Give ear to my voice. To pay attention. To be attentive when I call to you. The transcendent sovereign Lord David acknowledges his nearness. The God who is far off, First Kings 8, says heavens can't even t- contain him. See, the heavens are created. He's uncreated. Heavens can't even contain him, yet he comes near to us. How can this be? Well, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted, reckoned, considered, viewed as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. This helps us to understand when we look at the richness of incense and sacrifice, we see the sacrificial lamb, atonement, a substitute. David understood that God had provided a substitute lamb in light of his sin and incense. Uh, Underlining the, the pleasing aroma that, was, that God received the sacrifice, that the person was acceptable to him through the atoning sacrifice that was substituted for the sinner. But what's interesting is he's saying, let my prayer be counted and reckoned as that. Why would he say that? You see, he's been cast out of the land. If he's in the midst of the Philistines, he has no access to the temple, to Jerusalem. If it's Absalom, he has no access. He's the king. He has no access to walk into the place of worship, to take these types and pictures that point forward to the Messiah, Christ coming to sacrifice himself for us. He, he can't take those types and pictures and offer them out of a token of faith and trust. And so being separated from that outside of the land, he relies upon reckoning, imputation, if you will, God's consideration that God would look at that substitute sacrifice and he would view his prayer in light of that. Understanding there's only access to God is through a substitute. Give such richness to us who are strangers and aliens. But we have access to the Holy of Holies because Christ, our Lamb, has been crucified for us, borne our guilt. The innocent, blameless Lamb has offered His righteousness in our stead if we've trusted Him by faith. So we have full access to God. And we say the same thing. Let my prayer be counted. 
in light of the Lamb. And Hebrews reminds us that we can then come boldly with great confidence, even in the midst of suffering, to say, Lord, be attentive. I know you, the God, the sovereign one of the universe, are interested in what I'm going through. You're personally involved because you've provided atonement. You've sent your son, Christ. This week, my wife was driving. She called me on Wednesday in a panic, driving to pick up our son at high school in Papillion. And uh, she, she, she couldn't get to the school. It was blocked off. wonder why. 370 is completely blocked off. President Obama had come in to, to, to meet with a, a young teacher uh, from the school. And she described snow plows blocking off intersection after intersection. She was trying to get through the neighborhoods to get there. We know the secret routes. We live in Papillion. No way. Everything blocked off. No access. Well, I mean, no access to President Obama. We, we got to get that. Even in our American culture, we think everything's accessible, right? <laughs> Social media. No access there. Blocked off. But then access to, to our son. She said, could you imagine? She was telling me this yesterday. In, a great, in a face of a great calamity, a parent wanting to get access to a child, but not able to. Shut off the worry, the panic the frustration. David, in the midst of his suffering, has access to God in light of the sacrifice, even though he's not even in the land, hiding either among his enemies or in Absalom's case, with strangers. First Christian perspective then is prayer, access to God because of atonement, because of a substitute lamb. You know, the, the world doesn't have that promise. In Revelation 6, 16 through 17, you don't need to turn there, but when he comes back, when Christ comes back, they call out, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? This week I was just meeting with a, with a gentleman uh, who is going through a lot of suffering and we were reading an article that was reflecting on uh, unbelievers underneath the wrath of God. And this passage uh, stood out to us as we were reflecting on unbelievers when he comes back who have no refuge in the Lord, who have no access to the Lord, would rather be crushed by mountains. What are, we, what are they asking for? Uh, calamity, like volcanoes, hurricanes, earthquakes. They feel that they'd be safer if those would explode upon them in the face of God than facing God. That's the kind of God with whom sinners have to do with when we are not secured by his righteousness. We're under his judgment because he's a just, holy, righteous God. That helps us step back and go, for David to pray that boldly, he's not saying mountains cover me. He's saying, come to me. You're my, my refuge and strength. Encourage me through the ministry of your word. First Christian perspective then is prayer in light of substitute sacrifice. Second, God would guard the heart. God would guard the heart. This is astounding, guys. You read this psalm and you go, where is the bail me out? Where, get rid of the enemy. Get rid of this suffering. Get rid of this illness. If you could just restore my family, because my family is all shredded in part right now, you'd expect that. This is not what he prays for. The first thing he's concerned about is I have access to you. The second thing he's concerned about is his own sin. Because he knows that God had to deal strongly with the issue of sin by providing a sacrifice, atonement, so that he could have access to God. So now he wants to live a life that reflects the character of God. 
And so in verse 3, set a guard, O Lord. Again, you're talking Yahweh here, that statement of sovereignty, eternality, self-existence. To say, Lord, set a guard. And we would expect, right? Put a hedge about me. Put a hedge about my family. Put a hedge about... Now he doesn't, he says, Lord, set a guard over my, my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Put soldiers in front of my mouth to keep my heart from exploding out in sin. Verse 4. Don't let my heart incline, steer, bend to any evil, to busy myself, dealing with the practice that flows out of the heart, with wicked deeds, in company, we join those in this practice, with men who work iniquity, that's their labors. And let me not eat of their delicacies. This verse is very rich for us and provides much counseling material on our hearts. We would go to a doctor for x-ray or MRI or CT scan, CT scan to understand our, our hearts, uh, our conditions, our, our minds, our brains. The word of God provides an x-ray on our hearts. And what we find here is the heart is steered. The practice of the life comes out of the heart as a flow. It joins others, so it loves company. And it's allured by, as this verse says, delicacies. Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. The heart is a worship center. It is a vessel of worship. It is a compass for treasure. It has passion to fulfill desires. And so he sees sinful desires as allurements, as attractive. And he knows that his heart would be steered in that direction. If it's steered in that direction by those allurements, then he will be given over to the practice of sin with others who would join him in that. Helpful diagnosis of our hearts. So when we troubleshoot this, we ask, then I need to go after the heart and its desires, its passions. Oh, verse 8, David says, my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. I need to look at the glory of the Lord and my relationship with him, what it means to find refuge in him, to deal with my heart. Notice the submissive, dependent posture. Verse 4, do not let my heart. He, he, he's not, the heart is very deceptive, Jeremiah 17 says. Who can understand? It's desperately wicked. And David, with that reality, doesn't even want to trust his own heart. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six says, the one who trusts in his own heart is a fool. He trusts in his own mind is a fool. The heart's deceptive. So he even lays his heart before the Lord. It's part of his posture of dependence. Lord, don't, don't let it bend towards these things. And in the end of verse 4, don't let me eat of their delicacies. Don't let me be alert and captured by that temptation of sin and, and, and self-identity and self-worship so that I eat of it and engage in that practice. But Lord, I understand that I don't want to trust my own heart, so I lay that before you. He asked that the Lord would sovereignly guard his heart and sovereignly control his heart. In California, I lived there for a number of years, going to, to seminary. In the Los Angeles area, we had lizards. Uh, they were interesting. They're all over the place. Well, this one particular lizard um, caught my kids off guard. <laughs> the kids were already, they already know where I'm going with this. The kids were pretty young. 
um, toddlers. And here's this lizard running up on them, and it's snapping. We're like trying to shoo the thing away. It's just, I mean, it's smaller than our shoe. And the thing is snapping at them, and I could just see one of my kids reaching down and latching on or, or doing something crazy. So I, I'm trying to shoot away and get rid of it and move, and it just keeps coming back. It's, it's after him. So, of course, my father instincts kick in. And mind you, again, it's a little lizard. <laughs> so what I need to go to this degree, but it's just me. I'm extreme. Took the thing, threw it in a box, took a shovel. The kids are all watching. Going after the head. <laughs> and I couldn't get, it, get the thing hacked off. I know it sounds just horrible in this setting. <laughs> and the kids thought it was horrible, too. Our pets? <laughs> Dad's like, how'd you offend you? <laughs> Breaking the head off. But, you know, appendages aren't dealt with, right? It'll grow back. So i got to go after the head. Kids, I'll teach you what a man is and how to protect you. That was the mindset that I had. If I could take that over to the heart, we can play all we want with the the passions and desires. We can play all we want with the words. If I could replace these words with these thoughts. If I could separate from the accompaniment of people who join me in that. But the text says it's the issue of the heart. And so he lays his heart before the Lord. And reminded that the solution, again, is in verse 8. My eyes are toward you. They're riveted on you. In you I seek refuge. All that you have provided in yourself. I, I find all this richness and sufficiency in you. I'm captivated by you. This is what guards his heart from evil. And we know how it works, right? We don't feed on the word of God. We go through suffering, we turn inward, focus on ourselves, we start separating from the body, woe is me, depressed, becomes dark, and then those allurements start to rise up. The heart has got to worship something. It's meant to to treasure something. It was meant to treasure God, but because of our sinfulness, it, it, it finds things in the creation to worship and to treasure, and so our hearts are turned away. And we know what the answer is, I need the word. I need fellowship of believers. I need to see Christ by faith through scripture that my heart is captured by him. Now, this leads us into the third perspective. So prayer, the heart, the third perspective is rebuke. Because often in these conditions, we're not, we, we trust our hearts. And he prays that the Lord would send a, a brother, a sister, a, a person who's in a righteous standing with the Lord to rebuke. Verse five, let a righteous man strike me it is a kindness let him rebuke me it is oil for my head let my head not refuse it yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds that's pretty aggressive he's in the midst of suffering on the mouth of death and he's praying that the lord would send somebody to rebuke him that's not what we're normally looking for but he sees god's kindness verse five that it's oil upon the head it's used of anointing a king it's honor and let my, now my head refuse it. It's a testimony of, of God's goodness. See, because God has saved us and we have access to him through substitute sacrifice. And God is concerned about our hearts as a father to a child. We know that, that he wants us to reflect his character and sin is dangerous. And so there's a prayer and desire that, that God out of his fatherly love and care would send rebuke to confront us. But he knows his heart doesn't want to accept it. He says, let my head not refuse it. Why? Because my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. I love you. I've come to you through substitute sacrifice of the lamb. I did, I, I, sin is destructive. In my prayer life, I'm, I'm praying against the power of sin. 
But Lord, in those times when I trust my heart, I need you to send righteous rebuke to me. It's your kindness to me. It's an honor because I'm part of your family. And it's good for me. Keep my head from refusing it, from buckling up, becoming stiff-necked to it. Why? Because I understand sin. There's another reason why he would accept rebuke is because he knows that sin, in the end, has a, a grave end. There's judgment to come. He understands that the world's suffering is because it's rooted in sin. Sin of Adam, rejecting the Lord, and our standing in Adam, and that Christ came to this earth to judge sin, to deal with sin at the cross, to pay for its guilt and shame by receiving the wrath of God, and that he will come back to to judge one day in his coming. So he looks at life from the worldview of God, will right the wrongs. And I want that. Verse 6, When their judges are thrown over the cliff, when they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. So verse 6, he underlines the promise that, that God will alter things. For David, Saul was judged. He was crushed. I, I've been there to Bet Shan where he was he and his sons were hung up on the wall by the Philistines. It's um, quite a graphic sight, raised up above everyone to see. Absalom was judged. David had that promise as king that he would rule as God's king and that God would give him the victory. In an ultimate sense, we cling to this reality too because as believers, we know that he's coming back to bring judgment. So both aspects encourage our hearts. Lord, I'm against sin. That's why I love Christ. Lord, I know that your justice will reign supreme. Maybe in this moment of my life where the tables will be turned and and fairness will be exalted in my situation, maybe not, but in the end, it will be done. And those two remind us of our need for the kindness of God and his loving goodness to us in rebuke, to correct us, to expose our sinfulness. See, what David didn't want to do is join Saul in his sinfulness or join Absalom in his sinfulness. He wanted to live in light of of the glory of God. Lastly, so we've seen prayer, concern about the heart, because his trials are going to surface the condition of the heart. Rebuke, the Lord would send rebuke to deal with the sin that oftentimes is manifested through our, our own hearts. Praise that we would receive it. Lastly, He would be a refuge, that God would be a refuge. Verse 8, but my eyes are toward you. There's the strong contrast. Oh God, my Lord, in you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. This is beautiful. Why do we struggle with going to God boldly in prayer in the midst of our suffering? Why do we struggle with trusting our own hearts and and being swung away by allurements to join others in practice of sin? Why do we struggle with rebuke and receiving it? Because in each of those situations, we're trying to defend ourselves in the midst of calamity, in the midst of suffering. I don't deserve this. I do deserve this. Someone else made me do this. And we're looking to ourselves to build a defense so we don't go to him in prayer and in light of the ultimate atoning work that he has done. And, and we, we're not concerned about our hearts. We're trusting our hearts. And when we reject rebuke, 
we're putting up a defense over our own lives. And that does not reflect the Christian life. The Christian life is one who has found defense, strength, protection in God's provision of defense. Right? I mean, David is acknowledging that he can only come before God because of instance and the sacrifice that ultimately points to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's acknowledged his only access isn't because of his self-justification and his righteousness, but because of God's provision. Brothers and sisters, it's a reminder to us that when we forget our defenses in the Lord, it is that we bail out in prayer and we forget sacrifice, substitute, and we defend ourselves and we're not concerned about our hearts. We're in the self-defense mode. And it's a reminder once more to hear the gospel again and remember that we've had bold access to God because of what he's provided in Christ. Then I can pray and he's for me. The sovereign God is for me. Come quickly. And we can pray, guard my heart, Lord, surface the heart issues that come out in this suffering. And we can pray, Lord, when there are heart issues that I don't see, bring rebuke. Why? Because my defense is in the Lord. Because my defense is in the Lord because of all that you've given me in, in yourself. In you, I seek refuge. This statement's in verse 8. Oh God, it's Elohim deals with God as creator. Lord is Adonai. It deals with him as master, the possessor, the sovereign one, which is an amazing mix of titles here that the creator God of the universe would also possess me and own me in a way that I can say, my eyes are toward you. They're fixed on your beauty and your glory. And I am found in you. I am hidden in you. I have you as my refuge. This is some rich description used in scripture of a lesser nation trying to find refuge in a greater king, a greater nation. David says, it's, it's in you that I find refuge. I rely upon you to defend me. You've done that ultimately in atonement, and I know you'll do that in my daily life as well. Verse 9 and 10, keep me from the trap that they've laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. So lest we think this is just about God bailing us out in the midst of our physical suffering, he's talking about entrapments, temptations in the midst of these trials. Verse 10, let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. Because the trials, often others are using as temptations to seduce us. Satan is using that. The flesh is using that. The world is using these trials to tempt us, to seduce us into sin. And he prays that God would guard us from that as we find refuge in him. What was David's refuge? When he says, in you I seek refuge. I'd like to take you to Romans chapter 4 and see David's refuge. Romans 4, the Apostle Paul. And then if you're fast, you might want to go to Matthew 22, because I want you to see David's perspective of Jesus. Romans 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, he declares righteous the ungodly, it's only sinners who are justified. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And here's this David quoting, being quoted from by Paul. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David, his ultimate refuge, was found 
in the righteous, the provision of God's righteousness to him in the promise of Jesus Christ. It's where David's standing was. It's where his refuge was. God is my defense. As he looked to the imputation of the righteousness of God by faith in Christ. I'm a sinner. Christ, even through the promises of the Old Testament, is my righteousness. What was David's view of Jesus Christ? And I'd take you to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Now, this is a rebuttal that Jesus uses to the Pharisees. So we don't often look at it from the perspective of David's view of Christ. But I think it's helpful to us. Verse 42, Jesus had asked them a question in verse 41, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, Jesus responded, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Think of all the Lord talk we saw in our passage saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? I'd submit to you that David, looking through the promises of God and and a final son who would deal with his enemies, even sin and guilt before the righteousness of Christ. And out of that flooded a heart for the Lord. A number of years ago, as I was driving my family, they're young, so I keep thinking of the, the lizard story. They're young, they're kid, little kids, and we would drive from California back to Nebraska for Christmas. And so we'd tackle the black ice and crazy snow through the mountains. And we had one particular occasion where we were going through the Rocky Mountains, and it was a whiteout, and it's dark, and I can't see. I know there's cliffs on one side, something on the other. And I don't know what to do. I'm panicking. I'm like, this is stupid. 20-year-old, you know, we're like, we can do this. Cell phones? What were they? <laughs> you know? <laughs> what are we going to do? In big trouble. Well, this big semi-truck comes flying by. Came out in front of me. And I, he was going 60, 65. I'm like poking along. I'm like, Robin, I have got to tail the guy. I'm scared to do so at this whiteout. But if I don't tail this guy, I'm going to go off the cliff. And I hope that he knows where he's going because he sure seems like he does. So we lined in right behind that bumper. So much so that my whole front end was just flooded, packed with snow. It took me a long time to get the headlights clear. But he led us through all those crazy mountains amidst that snow and brought us all the way through. Now, if I stopped and said, so follow Jesus, you, you should say that that illustration actually falls way short. Because what we're dealing with here is our sin and guilt. If I use the analogy, I think it'd be a little better that that semi opened up his doors and took our car and put it inside the trailer and let us through. That'd be closer to the point. We find refuge in Christ. He has done it all. We rest in him. All the provisions of God are for us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, in Revelation chapter 5, every eye is fixed upon Jesus Christ and we are crying, worthy is the lamb that was slain. We look at Revelation 1 and we see John, he sees a vision of the glory of Christ and his mental faculties completely shut down. He falls as a dead person on the ground. Lord, we see a psalm like David and eyes are fixed on you. We would ask that we would look to Christ by faith through your word that the righteousness of Christ would buttress us in the midst of our guilt. His reconciliation would 
ground our peace, that his beauty would capture our hearts and our gaze, keeping us from temptation to sin, that his resurrection glory would give us hope in the midst of a dying world, that his love would lift our hearts to overflow with joy, that his, his power that's demonstrated ultimately in the cross and in the resurrection would secure our rest, and yes, even in our suffering. Remind us that you, using the cross to bring great salvation to us, can use indeed our sufferings to show us the greatness of Christ and the riches that he has for us and to open up our sufferings as a world of opportunity to boast in our weakness in Christ, to use it as a mission field. So we'd ask that we would be and would have the privilege of seeing the glory of Christ and your mercies to us in him, even in the midst of our suffering. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.